Coming up on the Shark Fighter podcast, from the picture of health. On one issue, they did have me on the cover, and uh, the caption for the cover photo was the picture of health. To another unsuspecting victim of sarcoidosis. Um, but I went to the MRI, and um, when I come out of the tube, uh, the, the tech looks at me and says, I mean, a doctor needs to look at this, but I need you to check into the hospital as soon as possible. I'll have an interview with Desiree West McCarthy, who was happy, healthy, and fit until sarcoidosis invaded her life. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome to this episode, episode 19 of the Sark Fighter podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. The official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards. Mark is a fellow Sark Fighter. You can hear his story and the inspiration for the lyrics to Zombie in episode 12. And if you listen to the words, man, they... They really tell the story of what we're all going through. And by the way, proceeds from the song will be donated to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Of course, I call this the Sark Fighter Podcast because I'm fighting Sark. So are you, whether you're a caregiver, a patient, a researcher, a pharmaceutical company, whatever it is that attracted you to this podcast, you are fighting sarcoidosis in one way or another. So, Welcome. Uh, the podcast started in early 2020. Uh, I felt like it was a place where we could all gather. People told me that they were feeling like they were all alone. I shared my story online and I, on my bicycle blog, uh, which is called Carl and the Cyclist, but I do have a whole series of blogs that I've done about trying to ride my bike. Well, learning that I had sarcoidosis and going through the various medications and now riding with a significant neuropathy in the lower half of my body due to the uh, surgery to diagnose me and, uh, and also from the fact that I have sarcoidosis on my spinal cord. So, uh, and then I went public because I'm a local television news anchor and they put me on super high doses of prednisone and there I was in front of the viewers who've been watching me literally for 30 years and all of a sudden I didn't look like the same person. So we told the story the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research shared my story and I started hearing from people all over the country saying, man, thank you for talking about this because nobody is. I don't know anybody else who has sarcoidosis. Uh, I can read about it online, but nobody that I can sit and listen to is talking about it. And I said, you know, I've been a broadcaster uh, for my entire adult life, uh, going back to my days in college, which would be in the uh, early 80s. And I, I think I can figure out how to do this podcast thing. So that's why the podcast is here. Um, 
So let me move on a little bit. If you want to do something to help in the fight, you should consider donating your birthday to FSR on Facebook. That's become an amazing source of revenue for the foundation to fund patient outreach and research. If you're new to sarcoidosis, you Googled around, you stumbled across the podcast, you're trying to figure out what's going on with your body, uh, welcome. <laughs> I'm sorry you have to be here, but uh, if you really want to know the basics of sarcoidosis, I've got a great interview with Dr. Simon Hart in episode two, uh, and that's helped a lot of people uh, kind of understand what's going on with them. And uh, he, uh, he spoke with us from the UK, and he's a leading expert, and he, we kind of went over Sarcoidosis 101, so you might want to listen to that. Uh, now, you may or may not know that the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research helps researchers work on solutions, but they also specialize in patient outreach, helping us cope with SARC, the medications, the search for doctors, the changes in our lives. Brain fog is a big one where you kind of have something that you want to say and then you can't remember the word. You can't think about where you were going. That is something that comes with sarcoidosis. At this point, I don't even know if it comes from the medications or from the disease itself, but it's something that everybody with sarcoidosis seems to be dealing with. So um, anyway, that's, that's uh, something I'll talk about more in just a little bit. But there was a big announcement from the foundation this month, October 2020. Uh, the foundation, FSR, has a new leader and I want to tell you about her and introduce you to her. Uh, her name is Mary McGowan, and she is the organization's first ever CEO. We've had executive directors before who have a certain amount of, uh, of leadership uh, ability uh, in terms of the leeway that they have to lead the organization. Mary now joins the organization as its first chief executive officer. Uh, I've got a little bit of information from her bio. Uh, she's got 35 years of nonprofit leadership, including uh, fundraising, public policy experience, and a decade of operations uh, with Women Heart, which is the National Coalition for Women Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. Uh, that's the primary representative of the leading cause of death in women. And so she comes to FSR most recently as the executive director of the Myo, I can't why I'm having such a hard time. Um, it's the Myositis Association (TMA), uh, which is another uh, nonprofit dealing with uh, diseases and and fighting and advocating for people who have trouble. And so uh, I I don't know why I'm having such a hard time, but it's M M Y O S I T I S, and they just refer to it as. Uh, as TMA. Uh, this is the quote from Mary uh, from the news release. She says, I'm very excited to be joining the FSR team as CEO. I believe the foundation has a brilliant research agenda and strategic vision that uniquely positions FSR to make the most impact for the sarcoidosis community. In addition, we have an extraordinary team of committed staff, board of directors, scientific advisory board, medical and research community, volunteers nationwide, strategic partners, and individuals supporting the efforts of this exceptional organization in the fight against sarcoidosis. She continues, I am honored to be in a position to build upon the success of past accomplishments and continue efforts to ensure that all sarcoidosis patients are empowered to take charge of their health 
with access to support, research, and appropriate care. Um, and, and she's just got a, a wonderful, wonderful bio and background, and I think that this is, this is going to be the perfect next step forward for the foundation. So I wanted to let you know that. Well, I'll put a link to uh, more about Mary uh, with the show notes with right here with the uh, uh, Sark Fighter podcast episode 19. Now, um, Redding Wilson was one of the two founders of the organization, and he and his wife, Andrea, have been on the podcast. Uh, Andrea is a fellow Sark Fighter. She started having problems, and that was what led 20 years ago to uh, the founding of the foundation, and now it has become the leading voice for people with sarcoidosis in the world. And uh, they both have appeared, uh, interviewed them in episode 11, so you might want to go back and listen to that. And Andrea's story is amazing, and she's been helping me, uh, she's been providing me with information that I can share with you about diet and some of the ways that she has attacked this disease and it's she kind of has gone through all the typical therapies and now she's gone through some atypical therapies and I, I think she's if I had to to categorize it is uh, is feeling better because of some things like um, acupuncture a specific type of acupuncture changing her diet being more aware of what's going on with her body and her life. And uh, so anyway, that's something to go back and listen to uh, on episode 11. And I feel certain that Andrea will be back on at some point. We will talk about nothing but diet and other approaches to dealing with the disease. Now, I do want to mention also that the, you know, a big fundraiser for FSR is the KISS 5K, Kick In to Stop Sarcoidosis. The 5K that happens every year, but of course with Sarco, with uh, with COVID, it's virtual this year. So uh, typically the event takes place in April during Sarcoidosis Awareness Month, but it is now uh, it has now become a virtual event. So the 2020 Team Kiss Walk and Runs uh, will be, and they and it says that they're disappointed that we can't all be together, and, and we get that. But I think this is the best way to do it. Uh, there's a virtual race that will take place throughout the month of October. Participants will be able to walk or run uh, at the time of their choosing and then use an app, upload your time, upload your distance to the virtual Team Kiss Walk and Run website. Users will be provided with instructions to download and get support as needed and walkers and runners have until October 31st to complete a 5K distance upload their photos and their stats and of course this is a fundraiser so you want to either donate on your own behalf or better yet get other people to support you by saying hey i'm going to go out and do a 5k even though i have sarcoidosis and please support me financially and then that money goes to fsr and it goes to research and then also coming up is the second summit that'll be on november 14th i'll be moderating one of the patient discussions more details on that as as I get them in terms of my role, but I can give you sort of a sample agenda for that day, and I've got it in front of me. So these are, and this is, uh, and there was already one uh, summit this year, which was virtual. Usually they have a summit in a given city, and people get on airplanes, and they fly, and they participate in person, but again, this is online this year. So uh, this is the sample agenda. So don't hold me to this, but topics would would typically be what is sarcoidosis? How do I know if I have it? Uh, discussion of disability and employment rights. 
advanced sarcoidosis, which might be cardiac, neuro, uh, advanced pulmonary, where people are having trouble breathing. And man, I've talked to some people here on the podcast that are right in the middle of all of that, fighting for you know with with heart disease because of uh, SARC, uh, heart transplants, neurosarc. You've heard me talk about it. Uh, and so you can go back and listen to some of the folks already here on the Sark Fighter podcast if you just go back and look at the menu. But again, we're talking about the upcoming November 14th uh, event, which will be virtual, navigating insurance, which is difficult, uh, brain fog. I've mentioned that. Anything that can be done about brain fog, if there is, I want to know about it because I always get to a point where I've got a word that's a, like a common word and I can't remember it. That's that's really great when you're a television news anchor. <laughs> that has not come up on the air yet, but it has here on the podcast. You've, you've heard me searching for what I want to say occasionally. And uh, yeah, historically, that has not been a problem for me, but since I've had sarcoidosis, yes, yes it is. So wouldn't it be great to go to a session about brain fog? Other manifestations of sarcoid, communicating with your medical team, that is a topic that comes up time and time and again. I've had some serious issues communicating with my medical team. Um, and and so many people talk about doctors that just don't know about sarcoidosis. And one of the things that we would really hope out of all of this with the podcast is that we raise awareness and that the medical community becomes more and more inclined to think when something's wrong early on, let's look for sarcoidosis. And then when we find it, let's have a path to treatment. Um, depression and anxiety, another topic that often comes up with SARC patients and is very likely to be one of the topics coming up in November. Again, I'm reading to you from a sample agenda. Um, exercise, and I'm a big advocate for exercise, and my doctors all tell me, keep riding that bicycle. And and I do consider myself an avid cyclist. I'm planning to ride uh, in a 50-mile event coming up this weekend. Um, self-care, um, navigating personal relationships. How you know? How I feel so bad for my poor wife, and you know other caregivers. All of a sudden, uh, are, are are forced to uh, you know change their lives to to help us get through all of this, and uh, so that then that can be overwhelming. And so there's from four to five o'clock p.m. on this sample agenda, navigating personal relationships, how to cope with the emotional fallout of sarcoidosis, and how to cope with the emotional fallout for caregivers. So this would be typically an eight to five event. You would join online. Uh, there is a $40 fee, which I think is you know more than worth it. And uh, and there will also be, uh, in the, the part I just skipped right over the part that I would be doing, which would be um, patients talking about, well, it'd be, yeah, here it is at 1.30 to 2.30, patient speaker panel, topics would vary. But basically, I'd be moderating a conversation with other SARC patients, going through some of their issues, talking about the, the high points and the low points of what they've been dealing with. And, and I would see that as sort of a continuation of what we do right here on the SARC Fighter podcast. So that's where, uh, that's where we are. That's coming up November 14th, and I really hope that you will, uh, will join us for that. And I look forward to seeing you there, and let's have a big turnout. Let's support the foundation. They're working hard. The staff is still working from home and putting this together, and it should be, it should be a great day, and I look forward to seeing you there. 
Um, Desiree West McCarthy is my interview today. She was literally on the cover of a magazine, and the caption said, meet the picture of health. An avid runner, hard, hard-working person. She worked in a hospital on, on the, uh, here I am with my brain fog again, on the marketing team, and then things started to go south for her. And the, you would just think she would be the last person in the world who might be fighting sarcoidosis, but she's got quite a story, and it's coming up next right here on the Sark Fighter Podcast. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter podcast. I'm so pleased today to have Desiree West McCarty with me, joining all the way from Tacoma, Washington. Desiree, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure to uh, be here and to um, be on the podcast and with all the other Sark fighters out there. Yeah, and you, uh, you actually had said you've been listening to the podcast. I appreciate that. I have. I, I heard about it. I want to say it was in January from FSR, and um, I've been listening to every episode, and um, I love it. I, I really appreciate you um, taking the time to use your talents and, and um, use that for the benefit of this greater SART community. Sure, great. Well, I'm I am always pleased to know that it, that the uh, the podcast is reaching the right people, and that it's working. And and I know. Uh, that you have been through the ringer, so to speak, with sarcoidosis. And I think it's, I want to start out by asking you about you having been on the cover of a magazine. Would you, would you start out by, by telling us that story? Yeah, sure. Um, so prior to my getting um, sick and diagnosed, I was, I worked for a, my local healthcare system, which was, a, it's a fairly large one. And they had a magazine that um, it gets distributed to about 200,000 households in the community. And um, I, I actually worked in the marketing department. So um, my colleagues are the one who, ones who distributed the, the magazine and wrote it. But um, on one issue, they did have me on the cover and uh, the caption for the cover photo was a picture of health. And so, you know, the, the story, you know, the issue was about health and like people having like good health practices and things of that sort. But um, this was in 2016, I believe, or maybe 2014. And, but yeah, I, I was on the picture. There was a big picture of me with a smile and, I, I honestly then felt kind of like a picture of health. I was in really good shape. I was um, 
running a lot. I, I ran a lot of half marathons at the time. I was pushing myself physically to do things. I did run one marathon and I was eating really healthy and I felt really, really healthy and good about myself. So um, that magazine was, was a captured a moment of time that um, I don't feel that way anymore, but <laughs> yeah. So, so you go from being a picture of health to a Sark fighter, a Sark warrior, and you, um, it started with a headache. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, th it started, uh, first symptoms were in 2016. Um, I had actually just gotten over a yucky sinus infection. And so a couple weeks later, I started getting these headaches and I just thought, oh, it's residual from the sinus infection. Um, but the headaches never went away and they probably started in June and the whole summer, um, I consistently had headaches and it was like, I would try to go to bed at night thinking I'll wake up and the headache will be gone. It was never gone. And it was always constant. And at this time I was going to work and kind of putting a smile on my face and really hiding it. Like, I mean, I told like my husband or other people, you know, close to me, what was, you know, that I wasn't feeling great, but I'm not much of a complainer. And so I'm like, it's just a headache, you know, and I didn't think too much of it until it lasted. I mean, until a couple months that it had gone on. And so I finally said, okay, I should go to the doctor about this. Um, and so when I did um, decide to go to a doctor, it was right before Labor Day weekend um, of 2016. And my regular primary care doctor was on vacation for the holiday. So I saw another doctor in her office who um, she basically, she, she actually encouraged me to start keeping a headache diary and monitor when I get my headaches, um, like things that I ate or how I slept that day. And she wanted me to uh, rate the pain level of my headache. Um, and so I started keeping a headache diary, but she did say it was a, right before a holiday weekend. She said, if it gets worse over this weekend, go to the ER. And um, it did get pretty bad over the weekend. Um, and I did go to the ER on, I think it was Labor Day that year. And in the ER, you know, for headaches, they kind of just do this like cocktail of medicine where they really just give, gave me Benadryl, which knocks me out. Um, they did also give me an MRI that day, but the MRI was without dye, without contract. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it didn't, it didn't show anything in the MRI. And so um, I went home um, and kind of dealt with it. Uh, I actually did see my primary care doctor when she got back in town and she referred me to a neurologist. It took me, um, from the time I got referred, it took six months to get into a neurologist. Yes, yes. It was crazy, just the wait. Um, and, and I was really frustrated with that. And I, and I even asked the people on the reception, I said, you know, how can I get in sooner? Like, what if this is something serious? I'm kind of worried it is. And um, they said, well, I think the problem was that I didn't have any tests. Just the MRI 
didn't, without contrast, didn't show anything. And so it, they didn't take my case. They didn't like raise it up to the level of priority. So it's, you're still having headaches all this time and, and dealing with it. And yeah. Wow. Okay. I am. Uh, or I was. And um, one, one thing my, when I did see my primary care doctor, she did say, you know what, why didn't you try taking riboflavin, which is also vitamin B2. Um, it's been shown in some studies and things like that to help with headaches for people. And so I did start taking riboflavin and I actually, um, the headaches kind of subsisted, they subsided, I guess. They didn't, they weren't too bad for a while. And um, so that six months that it took me to see the neurologist, the beginning they were bad, but over time it got better. And so by the time I did see the neurologist six months later, it really wasn't too much of an issue. <laughs> and yeah. so when I saw him, it was just kind of a, an appointment to just like, well, Let's see what I showed him my headache diary. I told him like all this things that I was struggling with, but said, you know, I'm not having too many issues. And um, he said, well, let's just uh, keep taking the riboflavin and get in touch with me if things get worse. And so um, that was in, uh, I think that was in March of 2017. Um, in May, I was on vacation in Hawaii. Um, my mother-in-law was sick at the time she lived, she lived in Hawaii and my dad also had just retired. And so the family went out there all together to, um, take a family vacation. And on our last day in Hawaii, um, I got this unbearable headache. I, after all those months of logging in a headache di diary, the challenge was like, rating my headaches on a speed. How bad are they, right? And I always was like, well, I, this is not a 10. Like, I don't, I can't imagine what a 10 would be like. Um, but in Hawaii, on, on the beach, I'm in, the swims, in my swimsuit on the beach, bawling my eyes out because I had probably a 10 headache. It was the worst pain that I had experienced <laughs> in my head. And we got home, you know, that was luckily my last day in Hawaii. And then when we got home, um, I ended up going to the ER again. And uh, again, they gave me a cocktail of headache medicines that knocked me out. Um, and it was nothing else, nothing else from that. Um, so I go to work that week. Um, I went to work on Monday and it was I, it was fine. On Tuesday, I, uh, in Tuesday morning, I was at work and well, actually before I even got to work, I was, ex I woke up, I was extremely exhausted, like a fatigue, like I never experienced. Like I took my shower and I crawled back into bed <laughs> and I, it took all the energy just to even get up and get dressed, it took all my energy to drive to work. I was at work and I'm, I'm literally um, having meetings and I, at one point I closed the door to my office and I laid on the floor in my office curled up just because my headache was bad and also because of how exhausted I was. It was this exhaustion that I'd never experienced. So I just left work early that day and I don't even know how I got home. I think I was on autopilot because I don't remember <laughs> getting home. 
Um, I actually do, I, I know from talking to my mother, I called my mother on my way home because um, my husband was at work. I knew my mom would have been home and I called her and said, hey, can you just stay on the phone with me until I get home, make sure I get home. Wow. And um, I did get home, I don't really remember it. And um, I got home and slept um, basically for the next two or three days straight. My husband, when he got home from work, um, he was trying to get me to eat. I mean, I didn't want to eat anything. He, I didn't want to drink anything. I just slept. We, we both slept outside on the couch in the living room because I, I didn't even have the energy to walk to bed. Um, and so my husband uh, did make an appointment with me with the neurologist again. And I saw the neurologist in the midst of this like, exhaustion fatigue and my parents took me to that appointment because my husband was at work and um he he basically just brushed me off again really yeah he didn't think anything was that serious he told me that what i have was chronic migraines and you know that i should try some over-the-counter some more different over-the-counter things um and I had, by this point, I had done my, like, research online, like, what, what kind of tests need to be done? And um, I thought, you know, I haven't had an MRI with the contrast. And so that neurologist tried to, you know, let me go and say, you know, just, you know, you just have chronic migraines. And I would not leave his office that day until he ordered an MRI for me. I, really? I, I mean, that's, I want to stop you right there because... I hear that over and over. If you're not an advocate for yourself, you don't yes. get the treatment you need. And even, even after you've been diagnosed. So you stayed in the office and you said, I'm not leaving until you give me the MRI. Yes. Which is very, I, I have to say, it's very uncharacteristic of me because I'm like, I'm a, I'm a very polite person and I'm, you know, he's a doctor and you know, I want to respect him and, he has years and years of school and, but I was, I was at my wit's end by that point because I suspected that something was wrong and I didn't know how to, he was my only hope really. Mm -hmm. um, he was the only person that I could think of that could help me because it, I mean, it took me six months even just to get on a list to see him. And although I wasn't thrilled with him, he was the only one that I could work with at that point. And so mm -hmm. I was desperate. And I said, you know, I basically said, like, he tried to send me home. And I said, I really need this MRI. Like, please order it for me. And he, he did. But he did it in a way <laughs> he based the way his attitude was kind of said, well, I'm doing this just, you know, so that you'll leave me alone. And, um, so he, but he did order it. And so, um, I think I saw him on a Thursday. I got into an MRI appointment on a Saturday. Um, and, um, in the time in between, I still, I just was a zombie. Like Mark Steyer sings of in his song. I was home. I only woke up to go to the bathroom and my husband, he went to the store and got some of my favorite foods. Like I love mango. I love avocado. Like 
he bought my favorite yogurt, like things that <laughs> enticed me to eat. And I was not interested in eating. And I, I wasn't even really awake. And um, so Saturday comes around, I go to my MRI. Um, and I don't, again, I don't really remember this stuff. Um, I, I went through this what what I call now short-term memory loss. Uh, there's things that just happen. I, I have no recollection of them happening. Um, but I went to the MRI and um, when I come out of the tube, uh, the, the tech looks at me and says, I mean, a doctor needs to look at this, but I need you to check into the hospital as soon as possible. Um, it was at a facility right across the street from the hospital. And so um, she said, you need to check in the hospital as soon as, as possible. Um, from what I'm seeing, it looks like you might have multiple sclerosis. Um, she saw some things in my scans. So I checked into the hospital, was in the hospital for a week. Um, it wasn't until like the second or third day in the hospital that I started prednisone. So prior to that, they wanted me to get all these tests before they gave me prednisone. And then when they gave me prednisone, it was kind of like a light came on and I, <laughs> I was, I like regained consciousness. It seemed like, like I, so even that first day in the hospital, first day or two in the hospital, like my husband was telling me about visitors that came and people like brought me flowers and cookies and I could see those flowers. I don't remember anyone visiting me. I don't remember anything from those days. Um, and so, uh, but when they did give me prednisone, methylprednisone, the IV uh, version of it. Um, thousand milligrams? Light, what was that? Was it a thousand milligrams? Do you remember? Yes, it was. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Been there, done <laughs> yeah. that. Okay. Go ahead. I didn't, yeah. didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah. No, you no, no. You didn't remember anything going on in the hospital. Finally, somebody's paying attention, and I'm, I'm amazed. I just want to, because you come out of these MRIs, and neurosarc patients probably are familiar with this, but, and the tech will never say anything to you, mm -hmm. right? Yep. I mean, you say, yep. well, how did it look or whatever? Well, the doctor's going to have to read, but these techs look at this stuff all the time. And so for that tech to say to you, uh, you need to get in the hospital. That's that must have been really something different or something alarming. Yeah, it was it was terrifying to me. And um, my sister Crystal had actually taken me to the MRI appointment because my husband had to work. And my sister Crystal um, is a nurse, and um, she's not uh, actively working um, right now. But she she's a nurse, and so she. She also was like a lot because she talked to the tech too and like, okay, she like, okay, we're taking you to the hospital. But right. yeah, it was, um, I remember my sister called my mom and um, my mom comes to the waiting room before I got admitted to the hospital. And I, I don't really remember this, but I have memories from their storytelling to me. But um, I think my mom walked in and I started bawling and I said, mom, they think I have multiple sclerosis. Um, so it was terrifying. Um, it was scary. It was, it was kind of like a, a, a time of my life that is just kind of a dark, it's, it still freaks me out to think that I don't really remember. And I had those days where I have no recollection, but I was like moving and I was participating and I was mm -hmm. talking to, people, but my mind was not 
um, processing it. So sure. that was so. So they gave you the they gave you the prednisone, and all of a sudden the light bulb comes on, and you sort of are like yourself again and aware. Yeah. yeah. But so they found actually found lesions on your brain or inflammation on your brain. And what did what did they find, and how did they get from where you were to sarcoidosis? Yeah. Um, it still um, so what they found at the time. Um, they didn't confirm that it was lesions. So they were talking about, they were talking about my myelin sheath and all these other brain things. <laughs> um, but they, they weren't, um, they didn't raise sarcoidosis as an option. And actually so many things were, were options. They were saying I could have Lyme disease. They were saying I could have lymphoma. Like it was, they basically were like, we have to, the, the world of options that are available, we have to narrow them down. And so um, that first hospital stay, I was in there for a week, basically because they wanted me to get five days of prednisone treatment before they released me to go home. But when I did get discharged, we still had no idea what I had. We knew I had something serious, um, but we didn't know what it was. And so um, I also... Um, during that time, actually like right before um, the hospital stay, like after I saw the neurologist and during that zombie days <laughs> of like not knowing, um, my husband and actually my mother also noticed that I was walking like weird and I had like a, I was dragging my leg when I walked. And um, so after I got discharged from the hospital, um, I started physical therapy because I, you know, had the walking wasn't that great. And then they had me do all the tests. Like they tested me for a lot of things and never found anything. And um, it was, uh, so this was over the course of probably like two months, maybe three months. For the end of that time, my, um, the neuro neurologist that I had been seeing had me see another one. <laughs> so he, uh, he transferred my care to another neurologist who specializes in multiple sclerosis um, and other um, neuroimmunology things. And um, so that new neurologist who is still my primary neurologist, um, she basically said, we've done all the tests. We can't do, the only other option less left is to do a brain biopsy, which I don't, which is probably like a last resort, like let's let's try to see if we can figure out what it is. But I think she's like the the only way that we can really know for sure because all your other tests are looking okay. Um, I did have a spinal tap, so in my spinal tap numbers, like they were elevated, but other than that, they couldn't, you know, say for sure what it was. And um, so that was um about two or three months of getting tests and not knowing what's going on. Um, I finally went back to work. I was off, I was on medical leave from work during this time and I went back to work for, I think it was a week. And um, Saturday morning after a week of being back at work, I woke up in the morning, went to the restroom to, to go pee and 
I fell in the bathroom. I don't, I don't, I couldn't explain to you what happened. I, I just fell. So told my husband, he said, we're taking the ER. And I did, we went to the ER and basically, um, they, they, (laughs) my neurologist, my new neurologist came in and, and basically they said, you need to get a biopsy like right now. (laughs) So I, um, they, I fell on Saturday. Um, by Sunday, I had the brain biopsy. And so the challenge with that is there was, you know, I didn't really want, you know, getting your brain cut into as a last resort. You don't is that want what they do. They actually cut into your brain. Is that the, I guess it's yeah. the only way to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Unlike some other organs or body parts, you can do biopsies like with putting like a little needle in or something, but the brain, they had to, they had to, um, yeah, basically cut out a little portion. And um, so they sent it to uh, the University of California, San Francisco, which at the time, and they, they still are, they, there's one of the top ranked neurology med, med schools in the country and, and the closest to, to me in Washington too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we did that basically emergency brain bi- biopsy. Um, and they sent the biopsy results to San Francisco. Um, and so after that, I'm, I'm in the hospital after brain surgery, basically. And um, it was, uh, those were dark days of my life. Um, the number one, I didn't know what the effects of the brain surgery were. I didn't know that I had SARC at the time. And so it's hard to pinpoint like what the inflammation was, what the surgery, uh, you know, um, challenges were. But, um, when I was in the hospital, they, I was in the bed pretty much nonstop for almost a week and a half or so. Um, they did have inpatient physical therapy and occupational therapy come in and see me. So I moved a little bit, but the, 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 medical staff seemed scared to move me because I don't think they had dealt with patients like me before. I I was pretty serious as far as like my physical um, impairments and things of that sort. And over the course of that time, I ended up getting uh, blood clots because I wasn't moving. I ended up with blood clots in um, my leg is how, is how it started. Cause I said, my leg hurts. My leg feels funny. So they did an ultrasound on my leg, found blood clots because they found the blood clots in my legs. They also said, we need to just double check and make sure the rest of your um, body looks okay. So they found blood clots in my lungs after that too. So here I am in the hospital. I had just had, surgery that I, a brain surgery that I was not expecting. I had these blood clots. Um, I also didn't react well to the anesthesia in the sense that it left me constipated. (laughs) So in the hospital, I was uh, several days, I had to get suppositories and and just not pleasant, but it was, it was not, I was miserable. Um, And I myself didn't know what my damage was. (laughs) I couldn't see what the what the damage was and um it was frustrating uh they ended up transferring me to an inpatient rehab 
center. Um, I didn't really know what inpatient rehab was. I don't know if many people do, but um, inpatient rehab, at least this facility, they basically focus on um, people. So a lot of their patients are people with brain trauma or brain injuries. Um, so for instance, some of my um, LO patients there, I mean, there were people from, there were stroke victims to um, accidents, you know, um, sporting accidents or water accidents. Um, anyways, uh, there were people with, um, you know, prosthetics and all sorts of things. So they, they're, um, a pretty, they were a really wonderful facility in like helping train people to like get used to um, functioning in the world again independently. Right. And you're thinking, why am I here with this group of people? Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You're, and that, you're like, wow, I had a headache and now I'm here and all this guy next to me doesn't have a leg and they're, they're treating me the same way. Right. Yeah. And, and mean, meanwhile, the biopsy results still haven't come back. And when they talked about transferring me to this facility, I really didn't want to go because I hadn't been home in a while now. I wasn't planning on this. And um, it, was, it, was, it was tough. I didn't know how much I needed care <laughs> either because I didn't get a chance to really get out of bed and see that I wasn't functioning great. Um, and so actually my husband and family, I mean, they basically had to talk me into going here because they said, you do need this help. You need this assistance. Um, going now is the best way to do it. And so I really was hesitant and actually caused some, probably a little bit of friction <laughs> with my husband. But um, I did go and it was tough to be there, um, but it was, it was good that I went. Um, in the rehab facility, I worked on my physical therapy. That was the big one for me. Um, and I worked on occupational therapy. That was big. So that was the big wake up call for how bad I was. Um, in occupational therapy there, we worked on things like self-care, how to take a shower. I couldn't take a shower <laughs> I, without help. Um, how to dress. I, um, I didn't learn this till I was in the rehab facility, but uh, I couldn't, I mean, getting dressed was terribly confusing for me. Cognitively, um, I couldn't put my shirt on it like correctly. It'd be backwards or inside out. Um, tying my shoes was difficult. Doing my hair was difficult. It was just and again, I didn't really discover this till I was there because in the hospital, you don't have to get dressed. You don't have to, you know, do things like that. They bring you your food. So even eating, like bringing the fork up to my mouth, I would kind of miss my mouth sometimes. I was kind of eating slop, sloppy. Um, it, I was not in good condition. Um, and at this point, because I, I had... I wasn't as bad as you, but, you know, I had a surgery on my spinal cord. You had surgery on your brain. And, and I always felt like the hard, the hard part was getting over the surgery. I didn't think that sarcoidosis was going to be the bad thing. So when you're having all this trouble and they're teaching you to get dressed again, 
Was that because you were recovering from the surgery or is that because you were having a serious SARC flare? So what I, what I believe now is that, because at the time I didn't know what it was, um, what I believe now is that I was, it probably was a little bit of the surgery, uh, but it was also probably the inflammation from the SARC because I had so severe inflammation and in my brain. And so I don't really know, it's hard to distinguish like what is caused from the SARC, what was caused from the brain surgery um, or other things that I had happened or medication or different things like that. Um, but I, I do think that a lot of it was probably the SARC. But at the time I was saying it's a side effect from the biopsy because that's the only thing that's the only certain that I had at that point right, right. Um, so yeah I was I was in this inpatient rehab we, we worked on physical therapy occupational therapy speech therapy which is not just I always thought it was just for speaking um, but it, they also work on cognition in speech therapy which is something that I needed to work on quite a bit um, that's remembering what, what it was you were going to say when you say cognition Yes. Yep. And things like, um, you know, obviously brain fog is, uh, is uh, common with all SARCs. So I, I mean, I had serious brain fog. And then things like um, I could not read an analog clock. They get confused about where the little hand is going and i would tell people it was the wrong time i would say the wrong hour um we worked on all sorts of things like that um and so i was in inpatient rehab for about two weeks um and before i got home and at this point i hadn't been home in like a month and i wasn't planning on not being home in a month and then began the process of, um, oh, I guess I should go backwards. In inpatient rehab, I did get confirmation that my diagnosis was neurosarcoidosis. Okay. How did they and, tell you that? I mean, did somebody just walk in? I mean, how did they tell you that? What was your reaction? What did you say? What is sarcoidosis? Well, yeah, basically. So before I left the reg before the hospital transferred me to the inpatient rehab, mm -hmm. the doctor in the hospital said, we suspect that you have sarcoidosis. Um, but we don't know for sure. She didn't, she was really hesitant to even tell me that. So it was like, she didn't want to talk too much about it because they weren't sure. Um, I actually had heard of neuros or I, had actually heard of sarcoidosis, um, I failed to mention, but my dad actually had pulmonary sarcoidosis. Really? When he was in his mid thirties. Um, and so I was familiar with it, but vaguely familiar because I was about seven years old when he had it. And um, I, I don't, you know, it was, I don't remember it that well. So um, I, you know, I knew that my dad had it, and it was a word that I was familiar with, but it was something that I didn't really know. My dad actually had a, a case where he doesn't, you know, he only had to be on prednisone for about six months and it cleared away and he didn't have any issues with it. So 
that's also something that I was thinking of. I'm like, well, you know, dad just took medicine for six months and it seemed fine. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that sarcoidosis could affect your brain <laughs> or right. your central nervous system or anything like that. So I did have a million questions for the doctor. Um, but again, at the time the doctor first told me about it, she didn't know. So she didn't want to, you know, dive, you know, get me too worked up or too concerned without confirming. And so when, while I was in inpatient rehab, the biopsy results did come through, but the, the doctors at the inpatient rehab facility are not neurologists at all. And so they were able to confirm that this is what the biopsy said, but they couldn't tell me anything about it. Like they said, you need to talk to your neurologist. Like we're there. The doctors there are physiatrists, which are physical medicine doctors. So they, you know, it's sure. That, but they're, that, they're trying to make your leg work right and your brain work right or whatever, but they don't know the root cause of what's going on with you. Right. Yeah. And they definitely couldn't answer questions that I had. So, so I still, I had, I, then, then I knew that I had this, but I didn't, I was in the hospital still, so I couldn't really do my own research. I couldn't talk to people about it. So I had to, I had to sit on that news for a couple of weeks before I actually was able to talk to somebody about it. Um, so that, oh, I, I should also mention that the biopsy showed that I have neurosarcoidosis and vasculitis. Vasculitis um, I have small vessel vasculitis, which in my brain. So vasculitis is inflammation of the blood vessels. So I had inflammation of the blood vessels in my brain as well. So what, when I did finally get a chance to talk to my neurologist about everything, she said, uh, if we get your SARC under control, the vasculitis will be under control. So okay. they're kind of paired together. If you're having inflammation with um, one, you'll have inflammation with the other. But yeah, yeah, we need to get the SARC under control, then the vasculitis will be under control. So that's the goal. So I got out of inpatient rehab and I began a series of like healing, which was that looked like my week looked like going to physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. I also was going to an anticoagulation clinic to care for my blood clots. They were monitoring that very closely. I was doing that. Um, after the brain biopsy, I had slight vision issues, um, nothing major, nothing that like a little prescription didn't, couldn't, didn't fix, but that was something I had to go see eye doctors for. And it was just, it was a full-time job and it was, I was, I was a hot mess. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, then my neurologist was basically kind of, we were trying to figure out what treatment plan I needed to do. So first we were working on, um, I was taking Cellcept, which uh, also known as mycophenolate modafil, if other people are familiar with it. Um, I, I, then I started IVIG treatments. Are you familiar with that? You know, I have, I've heard about IVIG. I haven't interviewed anybody who's gone through that. Um, you want to just give us a, a thumbnail sketch of what that is? Sure. Um, I mean, I, so IVIG is intravenous immunoglobulin. Globulin or globulin? globulin. Yep. Uh, so they basically, what it is, is they take 
blood, donated blood plasma, clean it up really good. I don't understand all the science, but you basically get injected with these, this cleaned up blood plasma and it's supposed to help with certain things. It's, it's very expensive. Um, they, they had start, started me. I did one treatment of it while I was in the hospital, but once I got out, um, they did start me on treatment for that. So I did IVIG for, um, I got out of inpatient rehab in September. I did IVIG through November. Um, and then my insurance didn't approve it anymore. They said there's, and we switched insurance companies, but yeah, insurance said there's no, there's nothing to show that IVIG helps with sarcoidosis or neurosarcoidosis. Right, and right. You're not approved. So I actually went several months without being on any treatment. Um, I was taking Cellcept orally, but that was the only thing. Um, and, uh, but I'm still working on healing and all these other numerous medical appointments. Um, March of 2018 comes around and um, a Saturday morning, my husband and I, it was actually a nice sunny morning and in March. So my husband and I walk around our backyard to look at like, oh, what plants survive the winter? How are things looking? And we come inside and I said, I'm feeling really funny. There's just things aren't right. He sits me down and starts for the time, like follow my finger and like um, some of the other tests that he sees my neurologist do. And um, finally he said, okay, let's walk, let's walk to our bedroom. And uh, you know, I couldn't walk <laughs> when, when I stood up, I kind of fell down and my legs buckled and um, I was feeling really funny. Um, we, uh, an ambulance comes, paramedics come, I go to the ER, we discover that I had a stroke. <laughs> um, so this was in March of 2018. Um, what, they, what they believe is that the vasculitis, the small vessel inflammation in my brain is what caused the stroke. Um, so the fact that I had this stroke was able to tell the doctors and my team that this treatment wasn't working. And really the only treatment I was on at the time was Cellcept. Um, and so um, I had this stroke. I ended up in inpatient rehab again uh, for quite a long time. Um, and after that, well, after I did finally get home, um, my doctor buckled down on finding a treatment plan that insurance would approve and that would work. And uh, we started Remicade treatments shortly thereafter um, in May of 2018. And thankfully, the, the drama of the story ends there pretty much right now because the, uh, I've not had a flare since I've been on the Remicade. And Remicade has been a lot better um, than some of the other things I was trying. And I was able to eventually get off of prednisone after being on Remicade for a while. Um, so I, I love Remicade right now because it's worked for me. I know it doesn't work for everybody. And I know that it may not work for me forever, but right now I am enjoying this moment. Um, 
Are you doing blood regular blood tests with the Remicade? I am, yeah. I, I was on it and they, uh, my liver enzymes started becoming elevated. And so then oh, I wow. that's that's what they were looking for. So then the, then they couldn't give me Remicade anymore. So it, wor it worked for me also. I know it works for a lot of people. Um, but eventually, if the blood test shows the elevated liver enzymes, then they'll have to take you off of it if your mm. case is like mine. So anyway, I, di I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm so happy that the Remicade's working for you. You're getting IV infusions every four I, weeks, every eight weeks? Every, um, actually right now, it's every five weeks. Five I weeks, am. okay. Yep, and at the, um, I was going into a hospital to get them, but since COVID, um, I, my insurance is the one who actually sent me a letter saying, because of COVID, we want to limit your, you know, um, since you're immunocompromised, we want to limit your um, hospital, <laughs> like, FaceTime. And so um, I actually got approved to get the infusions done at home. So I get a nurse who comes to my happy five weeks and um, administers the Remicade, which... Yeah. Um, which goes a lot quicker than in the hospital because um, the medication's already mixed and everything like that. So, um, yeah, that's because yeah. that, you sit there and they won't even start mixing the medication while you're in the chair until you get there, and then you wait like an hour for that, and then there's yeah, yeah. It really uh, it takes it takes a lot of, of time to go through that process. I know it well. It does. I wanted to ask you. Um, so you've, you've not had any flares recently, but you are, you're not really your normal self. You're not running half marathons anymore. No. And, and I want, you said something earlier about, you know, being a, a half marathon runner. I was a, you know, endurance athlete. I still am a, I'm a cyclist. I talk about it on the podcast a lot. Um, but you know, it's sort of like suffering is what you do when you're an endurance athlete. You, you get up to, you know, mile seven or mile eight, and you still have all those miles to go. And you said, well, I signed up for this. So you just keep plugging on. And that's sort of your mentality. And you had that same mentality when you were dealing with the headaches early on, right? It's like, well, I'll get through this. You know, I'm just, I'm just at mile seven and, and I'm used to dealing with pain and suffering. And now I'll, I'll uh, you know, uh, this is what I have for breakfast. So I'll deal with it. Is that, was that your yeah. mentality? Exactly. That's spot on. Like I, um, one of the things I loved about running when I was running more was that I, it taught me a lot about endurance. It taught me a lot about not giving up. It taught me wonderful, valuable lessons. And it taught me about an inner strength that I didn't realize I had until, you know, you're trying to <laughs> make it to the finish line and you're exhausted. And so I do um, attribute a lot of some of what I learned to, to running and to, you know, being in sports and things like that. Um, so that was actually toward the beginning of this process. I was like, okay, I'm going to get my game face on. Like this is a, this is a race and I'm running it. The end is not in sight, but I'm going to give it my all. And um, I think, you know, that has been a huge um, positive thing for me. It's helped me to kind of deal with everything. And so the difficulty now is that, you know, I'm not running anymore, but I still try to adopt that mindset and, 
even just maintaining regular exercise, which is very crucial and important for anyone with SARC and other illnesses. Um, it's important to keep moving and to get your heart pumping and things like that. And so there's a lot of days I really don't feel like it, but I, I kind of lean back on those lessons that I learned from running um, to kind of keep me motivated now. Yeah. So you, um, you can't ride a bicycle, even you told me, because it's too hard to get on and off the bike and you actually fell just trying to get on the bike and injured yourself. So you have a, like a stationary recumbent bike that you ride now. Is that, is that right? Yes, I do. Yep. I, I, um, I was never one to, I never really liked paying for workouts. Like I, you know, I never liked to have gym memberships. I like, uh, that's why, that's one of the reasons I ran. Cause I was like, running is free. And, um, so what, when I realized that I can't do that anymore and that I need to figure out some form of exercise, I did, um, end up getting a stationary recumbent bike. And that has been wonderful. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's the main thing that I do, um, daily. Um, my husband and I also go for walks and things like that. And so that's also another form of exercise that I get in. But beyond that, it's really difficult for me. I, um, still have major balance issues. And so I, even from before I got sick, I have some exercise videos. Um, but I, I have to make so many modifications to many of the moves <laughs> that it's almost less frustrating and not worth it to try them out because there's so much that I can't do. And so I do try some sometimes, but I'm modifying them so much because I can't, I can't, you know, do a lunge quite right. And I can't do a squat quite as deep because of balance issues. Um, so that's been a, um, that's been a big lesson is, you know, and a frustration at time is trying to figure out like what I can handle. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, uh, it's so it's so frustrating to go from being an active person to, to you know I've, I've talked about this on the podcast i can't run anymore i don't have the coordination to run uh, mm -hmm. but i can bike because i guess because my you know the pedals just tell my feet exactly where to go and then i have i have plenty of strength and i have plenty of endurance so I, fortunately i can still bike but i sort of defined myself by my physical activity uh and we've had other folks on who've said the same thing how have you been able to cope with not being that person that you were? What, what have you, if you could share that, I'm sure a lot of people would want to know how you've been able to handle it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know that I have a great answer for that. Honestly, it's been this, I think at first the, it was kind of a shock. Everything was a shock. I was learning what I could and couldn't do. And but the way that it was told to me at first by all the medical professionals is we don't know what damage is permanent or which damage, which things are going to come back to you over time. So they explained to me about like the neuro neural pathways and they have to get rebuilt and things like that. So they were like, you know, you could have these neural pathways that get rebuilt and you know, you'll eventually relearn how to do some of these things and be fine, which, which was, a lot of the occupational and therapy and speech therapy that I was working was rebuilding these neural pathways that got disrupted. Um, but 
So for me, it was always kind of holding on to hope that this is not permanent, that I will one day be able to run again, that I will one day be able to do some of these things again. Um, and now, you know, it's three years later, I, I was, I tell my husband, you know, I, some doctors say it's still possible. I could be, you know, get better still, but I think I've kind of come to terms with the fact that if, if it doesn't, you know, I'm just going to figure out another way to deal with it. But I, I, I do think that I do question if, um, some of these physical limitations are permanent for me. Um, but I, I don't know. So I just, I hold on to hope. <laughs> um, in the meantime, I also just push myself. Um, I try to make the best of this bad situation. And I'm also kind of like, I always question, am I doing the best that I can? So I can't complain that I'm not able to run anymore if I'm not going to physical therapy and I'm not doing, I'm not working out at home and I'm not doing the things that are within my power to do. Um, so I just take the frustrations and frust um, the energy that I would have spent running or doing other things that I try to put that into focusing on what I have the power to do right now and putting my complete effort into doing that. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's the runner mentality for sure. I mean, you're, you're still applying that, that uh, endurance athlete mentality. It's like, well, I'll get through this. I'll do the best I can. I'm going to take it head on and, and fight it. And, and the thing that I found uh, difficult was, uh, and I've heard this from other people that we've interviewed here on the podcast was, you know, there's, it's frustrating when there's nothing you can do. You can't eat better. You can't work out more. You can't lift more weights. You, you know, there's, there's always an obstacle to overcome when you're trying to get better at something. And then, so you just keep, you just keep plugging away and working on it. And sarcoidosis is so frustrating because there's just nothing you can do. I mean, if, if your leg won't go or if you don't have balance or you know, it's not your fault and, and that there's no way to attack it. Yeah. There's no way to just take it head on and say, come on, give me, give me your best shot because I'm better and you can't do it. That's so true. Yeah. It's, it's very true. And it is one of the frustrating things. And in the hospitals, days that I had like that was the frustrating thing a lot because I had to explain to people I remember how to read time I just can't like it just doesn't compute in my head the right way like there's things that in, in sarcoidosis is just a lot like that it's just I I know in my head that there's things that I can or want to do but my body or neuro pathways keep me from doing what I want to do or the inflammation. Um, you know, so it, yeah, sarcoidosis has been difficult and it's still, I mean, every day is a lesson and, in, in healing and recovery and how to continue to live, um, to the best of my ability with this disease. 
Yeah. So you're not working anymore, right? Correct. I am not working anymore. Um, I was after the um, uh, after the first after the biopsy. Um, I was on medical leave for a while, and I actually was getting ready to go back to work. I had just talked to them about going back. Um, it was the the week prior to the stroke. I had that conversation, and then I had the stroke, and that put me out again. And and the stroke any progress that I had made since the brain biopsy, like the stroke kind of like made me go like three steps back. And so um, it's still, you know, I'm still like recovering and still healing. And again, we, we don't know like when things that I come across as difficulties or changes, I don't know. Now I don't know if it's the inflammation from the SARC. I don't know if it's from the biopsy, although I assume most of the biopsy healing has happened, but I don't know for sure. And I also don't know if it was from the stroke. And so um, I think I, I, I also, you know, they, they tell me when someone has a stroke, the chances of getting a stroke again are, are greater. And so that's also something that's just kind of hanging over my head is that I mean, and I'm only in my 30s. I'm in my mid 30s, and I still have hopefully a lot of life left in me. And but I, I really don't want another stroke. And uh, after the year of 2017 and 18, I, I'm pretty traumatized by hospitals and things like that. I just really want to stay away from that. And so, um, I that also is another motivation for <laughs> trying to stay as healthy as I can as healthy as I'm able to, I want to work out and try to eat as healthy as I can because I don't want another stroke and I don't want, um, I don't want to end up in the hospital enough time in the hospital and I didn't love it. So <laughs> trying no to stay kidding. away. No kidding. All right. And, uh, well, you know, a lot of people just mourn the loss of the person that they were and they find counseling to be helpful and talking to other SARC warriors, SARC fighters, um, and I, you know, I don't know what you've done. You did attend, did you attend the summit on September 22nd by FSR? I, I did. And that is the first summit that I've been able to do with FSR because the prior years I was in no, it was not in a good condition to travel to them. And so I know that the virtual summit was not planned at the beginning of the year, but that was one benefit for me is that it made it, um, possible for me to attend it this year. And I loved it and I thought it was really good. There was a lot of helpful information, um, some really good presentations and I was taking notes <laughs> a lot and it was, it was, a, it was a good uh, summit. I really loved it. Good, good. Well, um, Desiree, uh, I just really wanna thank you for coming on and sharing your story and, and being brave because I know it will help other SARC fighters as they go down their path or look back on their path to compare their lives to your life and, and to know that people do get through this one way or another. Uh, because, you know, to look at you today here on our, our Zoom recording, you look like a healthy, you look like the picture of health that they told you that <laughs> you were on the cover of the magazine. Um, <laughs> And, and so I hope that is inspiring to other people. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And 
uh, sincerely, thank you so much for doing this podcast. I think it was, for me, um, I feel very uh, isolated from the rest of the SART community sometimes. And, and having a podcast like this has been very helpful and, and meaningful and helped me feel like empowered and like I'm not alone. So thank you so much for, for doing this. Great. Thanks again. And please stay in touch and, and we will uh, we'll continue to talk. Okay. Thank you, John. So FSR is busy at work, even though we're in the COVID crisis. I hope you'll sign up for the November 14th summit. Again, it's $40. And if you can't afford that, uh, uh, there actually is a scholarship. They'll take care of you. If you click on the links with the show notes, you'll, you'll find out about that. Minnie Buchanan was on the previous Sark Fighter podcast, and she talked about it. And again, I'll be hosting uh, one of the seminars uh, probably it will be in the afternoon, and I'll know more once the actual agenda is published. And thank you to Desiree for sharing her story today. What an amazing story it is, and we just hope that she continues to fight and continues to uh, to find good health, and I do thank her for coming on. Um, Again, uh, please send me an email in the show notes if you'd like to appear on the Sark Fighter podcast, if you have a thought, uh, I, you know, and, I, and I may just read some of your thoughts on an upcoming edition of the Sark Fighter podcast. Please follow me on Instagram under the Sark Fighter with the word the in front of Sark Fighter. I also have a Sark Fighter Facebook page. I hope you would, would follow me there and just kind of keep up with the updates and help me build this community. Uh, the podcast is, uh, by and large, a, a member of social media, maybe a little bit different, not not like Facebook exactly, but uh, just another way for us to communicate. And the more I can build the community and the more people we can reach with this, the more we can help FSR and the more we can help one another. So follow along if you would and just check out my pictures. And of course, I'll follow you back. And I just, again, want to thank Desiree for appearing. I want to thank Mark Steyer for providing the uh, music and the song for Sarcoidosis here on the Sark Fighter podcast. Until next time, keep fighting. Oh, 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 oh.